Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind. Howdy, folks, and welcome back to the Grass Talk Radio podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about bands versus jamming. And probably a good way to get started with this is to tell you that I think most of my listeners are probably beginner or intermediate level players because that's primarily what my content is about. Uh, certainly my website, bradleylaird.com, is filled up with information for beginners and intermediate players. There's a little bit of advanced stuff there, but, you know, the person that is out seeking information about how to play, usually they're not, you know, like a professional member of a working band, you know, nationally touring act. They're not the people buying the the Jam Session Survival book, for example. So I try to, with all of these podcasts, to the extent that I can tailor the material for people who are learning to play or already playing but want to improve, that's that's who I'm talking to, and you're probably one of those people. And I've divided um, those people. I'm just imagining who's out there, and I'm going to guess that you probably fall into one of the following categories. Category one is what I call the lone picker. And that is, you're probably a beginner or pretty close to a beginner. I mean, it's possible you may have been playing for years, but but a lone picker typically does not go to jam sessions, maybe has never been to a jam session. And if they have, they haven't been to that many. And they're definitely not a member of any kind of a band. Everybody starts out in that place. Nobody, you know, I don't think anybody begins this whole bluegrass, um, I almost call it a vocation. Um, people don't get into bluegrass starting at the top. I mean, we all know that. Nobody ever comes up to a, you know, a person on the street and says, hey, um, you know, Ricky Skaggs is looking for a dobro player. You know, do you play dobro? No, I don't play. Oh, that's okay. You know, you can do it. You don't start at the top. You start at the bottom, and, and it's a lonely place down at the bottom. So I call that first category the lone picker. Probably most people who have bought my mandolin instruction course or the play the banjo by ear or the claw hammer banjo video one, you know, they're probably lone pickers. And thank goodness for them. Uh, number one, they pay the bills. And number two, that is the fertile ground from which sprout all of the musicians that we see out there in the world. It all starts somewhere, and there's nothing wrong with being that lone picker. Now, that person, when you when you first start out, you don't know anybody. Or if you do, you're not maybe not good enough to play with them. You might know some pickers, but... There's a lot. When I started, I didn't know any. I mean, I knew some people that played music. I didn't know anyone who played bluegrass. 
and I tried to mold some of my friends into becoming bluegrass players, and that was a hopeless cause, uh, an idea gone wrong. But everybody starts out in that first category, the lone picker. You're there. You got your little instruction material. Maybe you're taking lessons. You got yourself an instrument, and you're trying to learn to play. And I've mentioned these sort of things in some of the other episodes, but that lone picker, at least certainly in the early stages, has the desire, the desire to become a musician, but they may or may not have the belief that, that it's actually going to come true, you know? Desire is one thing and belief is another, and you have to have both. So those lone pickers, they start out with the desire and probably the belief, or they wouldn't have even started. And they may hold some dreams in the back of their mind of, one day I could do this or I could do that. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're just curious about a banjo and just, you know, want to fiddle around with it and don't really have, haven't formulated any vision for the future. And that's okay too. I mean, you know, all this stuff is okay, but you're, you're going to fall into one of those when you start out. And now the question of that lone picker, can those desires turn into reality? Well, if they have the desire to become a good competent musician, entertainer, and they believe it's possible and they form some sort of a vision for the future, then I would say that, yes, that reality can come true. But, you know, the answer to that, that second question, do you have the belief? The answer to that question decides the outcome. It is not whose video lesson you study, which book you read. I wish it was. I wish I could say, Hey, my video will make it happen. But that's a, that's a lie. It's a lie. If I tell it and it's a lie, if anybody else says the same type of thing, these things help. And you know, I do like my instructional material and you need a certain amount of information in order to, especially if you're going to self teach, you do need information. And if you don't know anybody and you don't, you don't have a source of information, these things are a great thing. But whether or not you're actually going to one day turn into a really good bluegrass musician, that really, really all depends upon that little thing called belief. Now, let's move on to the second category. First category was the lone picker. Everybody starts out there. A lot of people stay there. They just stay there. And then I've, I've talked about it in the ugly truth. They stay there and they never get out of that. And eventually they quit. The second category is the jammer. This is sort of like you've graduated. You're now in junior high, you might say. The jammer. He's moved through the lone picker stage. And in some ways he still is the lone picker. But he's developed enough confidence and the, a few connections so that he's found some jam sessions, he or she, and has gone to some jams. And perhaps a few, perhaps a lot. 
maybe started going to some festivals, doing some parking lot picking, camp, you know, picking in the campground. So that's the jammer. And quite honestly, the people, the lone pickers who actually learn to play a little bit, graduate to become the jammers. And frankly, this is where most people end up. That's where they stop. They say to themselves, well, I'm not really good enough to be in a band. Or they have other reasons for not wanting to be in a band. I don't have time. Um, but it's usually that I'm not good enough. In other words, they're enacting their own belief system. They believe they're not good enough, so therefore they don't do it. If they did believe they were good enough to be in a band, rightly or wrongly, they'd probably be in a band. And we'll talk about being in a band more in a minute. But the jammers, this is where most people end up. And in my opinion, it's a great place for expanding your your abilities. I mean, just to be able to play with someone else could do a lot for your play. And you begin to make social connections and observations of, you know, what's going on in the bluegrass world. You learn about instruments. You have somebody to talk to about this thing you, you're insanely crazy over. But it can also become a rut. It's It sort of can become a junkyard for pickers, the whole jamming scene. Because it's it can be a comfortable spot. You can find a jam that kind of suits you, you know, where you... You enjoy going, or at least you enjoy it enough where you go some. And it it doesn't, or it, it may create an environment where it doesn't challenge you to the full extent possible. Because in a jam session, most jam sessions, friendly type jam sessions that I've been to, and I've been to at least a thousand, you know, they don't force you to take a break on a song you don't know. So, since you don't have to, there's no reason to go home and learn it. Uh, you know, it's it's a very self-serving group. And I'm not saying that being self-serving or being self-interested or selfish is a bad thing. I mean, you should do what you want to do. And you should try to enjoy what you're doing and do the things you want to do with the people you want to do it with. I get that. But jam sessions are this strange mix of it, it, go back and listen to field guide to bluegrass jammers, where I describe a whole bunch of the types of people that you see at jam sessions. I mean, this jam sessions are populated by has been's, uh, people that, you know, used to play really good, wannabes, people who don't play good, but they want to be good. Uh, it's You got people who don't really believe it's possible to ever be any good, and they come to jams. And you got kind of this, the, sometimes these selfish people that come, and they just want to do their little thing, and they they want your support for their thing, but they're not really interested much in your thing. And you've got helpful people who, who drop in and are trying to help you with your instrument and show you little things. I mean, it's a mix. It's a mix of good and bad. But it's, it's kind of like this. 
I don't want to call it a dump because, but it is sort of like the, the county dump. There, there's a lot of stuff just ends up there. You know, people, people of all levels and of all attitudes and of all abilities, they all just end up in these jam sessions and they're thrown together. But, but there's some good stuff. I found some good stuff at the dump. There's some good stuff there too. I'm not saying it's all negative, but it's, so disorganized. Nobody at the, well, maybe today they do, but at the dump, they just push the stuff off the back of the truck and it piles up. There's no thought, not much thought goes into how they organize the the crap that's thrown in the dump. And that's the way a lot of jam sessions to me appear. It's like people of all types just kind of pour into this thing and they're all mixed together. Each one is kind of trying to force his thing onto the other people. And at the end of the day, very few people end up very happy. It's it's a strange thing. And it's so incredibly popular. And in a way, I think maybe it's really popular because it's not that challenging. Because you can always sit on the outside of the circle. You don't. There's no spotlight on you. There's not much of an audience usually. You can be pretty bad and still have a good old time. You know, it's not all bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying jam sessions are bad. But they're, they're sort of this uh, melting pot dumping ground for pickers who never had enough belief to move up to the next category, which I'm about to talk about. Or maybe they did... And for whatever reason, they've bounced back into the category of jammers. And there are some great musicians who will show up at jams. And a lot, sometimes the person that started the jam session might be one of those people. Maybe played in a band for 15 years and was really good and had had a great show and a thing, but the band fell apart, the banjo player moved and this and that, and, you know, conditions changed. And they're no longer in a band, but they still love it. And they come and maybe they started the jam session. I've done that myself. I mean, that wasn't a description of me, but I have started jam sessions. So it's not always a bunch of beginners getting together, trying to start a jam, although that happens too. What I'm saying is there is every kind of thing going on in jam sessions. But if you graduate to the next level, the next level is the band member. So here are the first, here are the three groups, and you're probably in one of these groups. The lone picker. Number two, the jammer. Three, the band member. To be in that category, you have to be in a band. I'm not saying what kind of band, how good your band is, or how bad your band is. It doesn't matter. Uh, but I would say to qualify as a band member, the band at least has to have a name, you know, the grass talk radio mountain boys or something equally ridiculous. Now, the, the difference between the jammer, all those people, I shouldn't say all, most of the people who are in that jammer category, going to jams, going to jams, going to jams. The difference between them and the band member is the focus of what they're doing shifts. For the jammer, 
And I don't mean this negatively, but it's mostly about yourself. You go to the jam because it's fun. It's no fun. I don't go, you know. People go to the jam session to have some fun and to get some satisfaction out of what they're playing. But as a band member, that, that kind of shifts. You change from solely thinking about yourself, but you begin to thinking, think about making other people sound really good. Not That does happen at jam sessions. Don't get me wrong. But you also begin to bring in this, this other category, which is generally forgotten and overlooked in jam sessions, and that's the audience. A band is formed f for the purpose of playing music for an audience. That's why you form a band. And you can get great satisfaction out of that. I think you get more satisfaction out of being in a band, even a lousy band. I, I've said, uh, you know, half-jokingly a few times, I'd rather listen to a bad band. Well, no, no let me say it correctly. You'll get more out of being in a bad band than you will out of a great jam session. Before, we're going to come back to being a band member, and, and we're going to get to this whole thing of comparing being in a band versus being, being a jammer. But there are a couple more categories. Probably most of my listeners are not in these categories, but might have some of this first one, and that is the semi-professional band member. So number three was you're a band member. Now, maybe you have a band, and it's got a name, and you've never actually played a gig. Or you did play a backyard party for your brother-in-law by, out by the pool. You know, that would be a band. The semi-professional band member is just kind of a notch up of that. They are uh, more accomplished bands who, you know, they're striving for a professional quality show. And they do, to the extent that they're able, play professionally but on a part-time basis. You know, a lot of them have careers and jobs and families and so on. And those semi-professional band members, the fourth category, they still do some jamming too. And they also have this little advantage of because they're out playing, you know, a, a kind of a higher level of, of gigs, they can rub shoulders with some of the, the professionals that would be the fifth class of player, the professional band member. And you can name those just, you know, you know the pros in the business, and they are people who make their living playing music. Now, I will say this. There are professionals who make their living playing bluegrass music who, to me, aren't that good. You know, it can be done, <laughs> But there are also some fabulous um, semi-professional bands who, you know, maybe their CD doesn't sound as good as the latest Ricky Skaggs CD because, you know, they did it in their brother-in-law's basement studio. But when the, when the semi-pro band performs at a festival 
and they're followed on stage by the professional band. A lot of times the semi-pros um, go out there and do a better job. They might, they might not play and sing as well as the professionals, but a lot of times these semi-pros, they are so enjoying being up there on the show with the pros and they don't have the big tour bus and they're going to do this festival and they're going to go back to work on Monday, but they so enjoy the experience of it that they pour it out a hundred and 50% where sometimes you see the pros. I mean, I've seen the pros put out 150%. I've seen them put out 80% a lot too. Maybe it's the miles. Maybe it's, you know, not being able to remember what town they're in. I've, you know, we've all seen that, you know, a band come up, Oh, it's great to be out here in Oklahoma. And they're not in Oklahoma. You know, it's a, it's a hard life and they can, Sometimes those pros can, you know, they can lose their enthusiasm because of what they have to go through to be professional road musicians. And, you know, you see also the opposite. You see pros get on stage and just, just killing it. And you see semi-pros that maybe ought to go home and practice a little bit, you know. Uh, anyway. We're not going to talk too much about those two categories, the semi-pro band member and the professional band member, because more than likely you're probably not one of those. You might be a semi-pro. And there's a lot of overlaps between that third category, just the, the band member and the semi-pro band member, because once in a while, one of those little startup bands that, you know, once in a while, somebody will ask them to play, you know, hey, we want you to come play our thing. And, uh, you know, it's perfectly okay to take that gig. I'm not going to get into the whole economics of, of bands and all that kind of stuff right now. I've been putting off that subject because it's, it's so depressing. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, just review the five categories and try to self-identify which one are you. Number one, the lone picker. Uh, number two, the jammer. Number three, the band member. Number four, the semi-professional band member. And five, the professional band member. Now, I don't really care which one you are uh, or which one you become, because that is your job. My job, I look at it, is if you're a Number one, a number two, or a number three, I might have some experience and knowledge that I can share with you, either for free on this podcast or through some of my books and videos. Check them out, bradleylaird.com. Okay, got the plug out of the way. But I can tell you this. This is, I think, a very important thing. Is that of those three categories, the loan picker, the jammer, and the band member, only one of those is actually capable of playing bluegrass music. That sounds like a very, hmm. wonder why he says that. You, you mean I can't just sit at home and play bluegrass? No, you can't. Uh, you mean I can't just go to jam sessions and be a bluegrass picker? Well, I guess it depends on how you define bluegrass. But if you're a band member, 
in a bluegrass band, then you can play bluegrass. And here's why I say this. Bluegrass is a band form of music. It's a band form. Since the first bluegrass was ever played, performed, or recorded, it was a band. To be bluegrass is to be a band. A particular type of band, a bluegrass band. Sitting around, playing on your porch... Let's say you play the banjo. Well, that is banjo picking on your porch. That is not bluegrass. You might be playing in the style that is used within bluegrass as a band form, but it alone is not bluegrass. I used to see back um, back in the 70s at a lot of bluegrass festivals, I would see John Hartford booked on the festival. And in those days, he played solo. He did not carry a band, didn't even have his son playing bass with him at that time. He played solo. He stood up there, and he either played his banjo, his guitar, or his fiddle. And he put on a great show. I love John Hartford. I really, really love John Hartford. But that wasn't bluegrass. So... But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying bluegrass is the only form of music that is of any value. It's okay to be a John Hartford. You can do that. You can be a lone picker, John Hartford type person, pick on the porch. You can be a, I'm just a banjo picker and I like to go to jams. Or you can be in a band or you can be a solo performer. All those things, they're all good. But if you're going to say it's bluegrass, bluegrass is a band form and the model band of course, is Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. That is the, the model from which all other bluegrass bands have sprung and modified. I'm not saying there's only one way to do it. But bluegrass is a band form. So if you want to be a bluegrass player, I think it's a great idea to be in a band. Now, second thing that I can tell you for a fact, is that being a really good, solid jam session player, the jammer, is harder than being a really good, solid band member. You might say, why is this so, Ranger Brad, Professor Brad? Tell us why this is so. It's quite simple. When you walk into a jam session, there are a lot of things you do not know. You do not know what song they are going to play. You do not know what key they will play it in. You do not know how fast they will play it. You do not know what instruments will be there. You do not know the quality level of the other musicians. And there's a good chance you won't know the song. You, you won't, you know, never played it before. So it's a tall order to be a great bluegrass jammer. I will say it's easier on certain instruments. I think a, a decent fiddle player has a little easier time at a jam session because so much of what they do is back up. And they could always beg off the brakes 
The same would go for, we could say, if all you play is rhythm guitar and there was another guitar player there, you could watch his hands and figure it out pretty quick and, you know, not have to take breaks and you don't have to sing. Um, if you're, uh, let's say you're just a, a mandolin player playing chops, just chop chords with a jam session is not that difficult because quite frankly, you can play a lot of wrong chords and nobody will ever hear it. I'm not suggesting you do that, but I'm saying that little percussive chop, if you happen to hit a C chord when it was really an A minor chord and it lasted for 10 milliseconds, probably nobody's even going to know. You might not even know. So there are certain things that are easier to do in, in a jam session setting, but my point is this, if I'm sitting there at a jam session, I have no clue what's about to happen. I'm probably not going to perform at my maximum potential, <laughs> you know, and neither will you unless, and this goes to what I was saying about the selfish nature of jam sessions, unless you begin to try to mold the jam session into the thing you want, like, Hey, I've been working on this tune. Uh, would you guys play it? And they say, well, I don't know it. I said, well, the chords are, and I try to teach them the chords and the bass player scratching his head and they don't know it and you play it. And it's just not going to be as good as if, let's say you had you and four other people who had been practicing that song in your kitchen, you know, for the last eight Sunday afternoons. I'll bet you those five people could play that song better than that jam session. Now, admittedly, if you play the songs enough and you have consistency in who shows up, who shows up time after time at the jam sessions, sometimes it can sort of mimic what goes on in band rehearsals. But it's tough to walk into jam sessions and really shine unless you're just incredibly good. And you got to know a lot of stuff because, I mean, let's say you're a banjo player and you sit down and jam. There are hundreds of potential banjo tunes which could be tossed out and you need to have a little familiarity with them it's hard to fake your way through follow the leader or uh, orange mountain special if you've never tried to play it you know it's just not as easy to fake your way through it but in a band the the secret to band performance is planning and rehearsal I mean, ask, ask anybody who's ever been in Doyle Lawson's band, what rehearsals are like. And I ask band members in Doyle Lawson's band, what rehearsals are like. Same uh, thing. I, I asked one time I asked the fiddle player from third time out, he came wandering back in our campsite at a festival one time, just wandered around, didn't have his fiddle with him or nothing, just sat down and started talking to us. And I, you know, just quizzing him about things and just talking. And he said a lot of times at rehearsals, he gets really bored because they would have these six hour rehearsals and it would be nothing but singing. And he'd just sit there and hold his fiddle the entire time, but he had to be there. So there's a whole lot of rehearsing goes into great play as a band. So anyway, why is bluegrass jamming not actually bluegrass, contrary to popular opinion. 
I hear people say all the time, hey, we're having a bluegrass jam session down at such and such. And I go there and I don't hear any bluegrass at all. I hear a lot of picking. I hear a lot of banjo picking, guitar picking, mandolin picking. I don't hear any bluegrass. Because in order to be bluegrass, you have to present the form. You know? Five guitars, a banjo, and everybody singing in unison ain't bluegrass. Okay? It still might be fun and it's it might be good stuff, but you know, I'm not gonna get down that whole can of worms of, you know, what is bluegrass and what is not, other than to stand on what I said of bluegrass is a band form. And jamming is something that just sort of organically appeared out of uh band members and who who would go to festivals performing and they would get together and play with each other. And then into that group also came people who were, you know, the lone pickers who were ultimately wanted one day to get into a band. You know, if you go back and there, there's some old documentaries about some of the early bluegrass festivals, you'll see that this is true. And they used to always call it parking lot picking. Anyway, let me tell you a little story about that will help you def- understand what I'm talking about. The difference between jam session bluegrass and bluegrass bluegrass band type bluegrass and that is uh back in the 80s this might have been in the 90s um i was in the atlanta area i was involved in a in a local bluegrass association and uh, when they started back in 1984 i was called upon i was a printer back in those days and i used to print typeset and print the newsletter did that for about three years but I wasn't, other than to go to the meetings, I wasn't involved in, you know, I wasn't on the board. I wasn't an officer or anything like that back in those days. But after many, many years, uh, this is probably around 98 or 2000, I, I don't know what year it was. I got asked to serve on the board and I did. And they had started up a, a chapter. They started having meetings instead of just the one location. There began to be more chapters popping up. And I used to go to the one that was close to me. Once a month, they had the the meeting. It was a meeting and a jam. So you'd go to the meeting and, you know, somebody would stand up and tell you about what was going on and hand out some flyers and tell you about upcoming show and this and that. The bluegrass news of the day. And then they would just have refreshments and bust up and jam session. Now, this um, this organization at that time had about 35 bands or thereabouts who were band members of that organization, mostly semi-professional bands, a few pro up, pro bands, but mostly semi-pros, and probably seven to 800 individual members. And I know this stuff because I was on the board and I used to print the newsletter and stuff like that. But at these meetings, they would, you know, they would invite the public to these meetings too, because they want to develop more interest in bluegrass and, you know, that kind of thing. There'd be a sign up, you know, bluegrass today, you know, four o'clock or whatever. So, you know, I went to a few of these meetings and this was, I, I honestly had not gone to any of their meetings or jam sessions for probably 10 or 12 years. And then I got back into it and started going. So I go to the thing and there are, you know, they have a short little business meeting, tell people about what's going on and this and that. And then they, 
It's refreshments and jam for a couple hours. But there would be people that would drop in that I would notice that were, they didn't bring their instruments. They were just like John Q. Public who had come and they sit through the little business thing. They don't even know what bluegrass is. They're just curious. They're curious onlookers. You know, there'd be a handful of those people there at every meeting. And then all the jamming would take place. And I began to become a little bit disturbed because I felt like somebody who dropped in on a, on a meeting of a bluegrass association, it'd be nice if they actually heard some bluegrass and they weren't hearing bluegrass. If they, they'd wander around and watch the jam sessions. There's four guys over here and seven over there under that tree playing tunes. And it's really cool stuff. I mean, they're hearing music and I'm not knocking the music that is produced by jam sessions, but they never really heard bluegrass. So I suggested to the president of that chapter, I said, why don't you don't change what you're doing. Still have the meeting, the little short business meeting, informational stuff, still have the refreshments, still have the jam session, but why don't you carve out 30 to 40 minutes and get one of the member bands to come and perform? Because a lot of these member bands, frankly, they could use a gig and they'd like to sell a couple of their CDs and self-promote a little bit. Maybe somebody in the audience might need to hire a band and might see them. And, you know, it would be basically try to talk the members into providing a service to the public by performing live, a little short show at the meeting. So then a person could see what bluegrass could be with a little bit of spit and polish where, you know, instead of hanging around a jam where you really can't hear too good and there's a guy singing lead and, there's a tenor singer who doesn't know the words, who's just doing the best he can versus go up there and hear a band that has rehearsed and practiced and really worked on their harmonies. And they got their, their diction together and they're hitting all their vowels and consonants together. And they're, they got these arrangements. It's, you know, even the worst band can do a better job of representing what the bluegrass band form really is compared to a jam, which you never know what's going to happen at a jam. I felt like sometimes if a person didn't know anything about bluegrass and they came and they hung around and they, depending upon how the jam was going that day, if they saw a bunch of tired old people just playing these same old things and dragging and a bunch of beginners playing Cripple Creek at 75 beats a minute. And ugh, I mean, you might come away going, well, I don't like bluegrass, and I thought it would, you know, would be a good idea to have bands come so that somebody could hear some real bluegrass and then also hear jamming, you know, and then they would know the difference. Anyway, they did that. They did that for a while. Our band was even one of the bands that volunteered to go down there and put on our little show, and we sold a few CDs and, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I don't know whether they're still doing that. I hope that they are. But, you know, there are a lot of people that get involved in bluegrass and they don't know anything other than jamming. That's all they know about. And frankly, some people, that's all they care about. Not making a judgment call on whether that is good or bad. I'm just saying there is a big difference between jamming and band performances of every quality level. So anyway, 
One of these days, I'm going to do an episode, since we've been talking about the concept of a band, of starting a band. And I'm just going to briefly hit on, I think you should start a band. And I'm not going to go into that whole debate today about, well, you know, there's all these bands that aren't really good and they're out play, taking all the gigs from the good bands and all that stuff. I mean, I'll do something on that when I do that, that uh, bluegrass economics thing. But look, everybody is going to grow as a musician if they will form a band. And so here's the very simple uh, four-step instructions for starting your own band. Number one, find some members, you know. And if you're curious, um, just look at a picture of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, and that'll tell you what you need. You know, get you a bass player and a guitar player, a fiddle player, a mandolin player, and a banjo. And, of course, you could always have a dobro if you wanted to. So find some members. Where do you find them? Go to jam sessions. Keep your eyes open. Um, number two, choose a private rehearsal time and space. And by private, I mean not even wives and girlfriends or boyfriends or kids. Find a private rehearsal time and space. I'm of the opinion that you cannot properly rehearse with non-band member onlookers present. Not going to go into all that right now, but I'll explain that more when I do my episode on how to operate a band and how to rehearse a band. But make it private. You're not performing, you're rehearsing. So choose private rehearsal time and space. And number three, start working up a set. And just for uh, rough calculations, let's call a set a 45-minute performance 13 songs. So start with number one and work your way up until you have at least 13 songs. And some of those will go away later and be replaced and so on. And once you have one set worked up, work up a second. That's a good start. Have at least two sets. And the fourth and probably most important, well, it may be the most important, but it is vitally important, is Choose a name for the band. You're not a band if you don't have a name. So pick a band name. Bingo. You got a band. You're rehearsing. You're working on a set. And you got a name. This is where it all starts. I'm not saying you're any good. I'm not saying you will ever be a professional. But I can assure you, you will learn so much from this. You will learn more from this experience of starting a band then you would learn at 500 jam sessions. You'll learn more than you will ever learn from all of my video lessons and all of my books or videos. Not that you won't learn things from those, but there are things you will learn by trying to actually put together a real bluegrass band. There's things you will learn from that that just simply cannot be taught in lessons, books, videos. Because what you're going to do is learn how to interact. You're going to learn how the bluegrass machine really functions. And you're going to learn, and this is really important as to why this can help you become a better musician. You are going to learn what is required of you. What is your part? How does your gear mesh with the others? Are you fulfilling your part? 
there were a lot of people over the years in Atlanta who thought I was a pretty darn good mandolin player. And I used to joke that you don't know what you're talking about. You just think that because you've seen our band perform. And I try to play what I play in the performance as, as well as I can. But I think they forget about the fact that I spent a lot of time rehearsing and I knew precisely what was required of me. And so it made practicing a lot more productive. I knew I had the kickoff on this song in this key at this tempo, and I knew I had this little twin thing I did with the banjo at the end of this song, and it might have only been, you know, I don't know, 13 notes. And if I nailed those 13 notes, and so did the banjo player, and we played them together, people go, man, that was good. Well, that doesn't mean I can play anything else. I mean, I can play some other stuff too, but... It's, it's easier to perform well if you have a plan so that you can put your energies into the, those things. Now, that whole act of developing a band helps you become a better jammer, too, I think. If you know how the bluegrass machine works, I think you'll sit down at a jam and perform that way. Anyway... In the future, I'm going to do some episodes on these topics about bands because I, I do think being in a band is, is ultimately very important. And it will stop that, the, that um, attrition. The, the people that get started in that category one, the lone wolf or the lone picker, and then they may or may not graduate into the jammers. But if they get into a band, there's a, there's a much higher chance that they will stay with it for a lifetime. Even if that band falls apart, when, when that happens, there becomes this burning desire inside you to get another band together. Anyway, so I'm going to talk in some future episodes about how to organize and operate a part-time band, how to rehearse a band, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I hope I got you at least thinking about comparing jamming with bands. And I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. And uh, just this week, uh, somebody um, made a little donation and got one of those Grass Talk Radio supporter packs. Um, and I won't mention your name. Um, but, you know, actually, I think I think since I started that four, four times, someone has done that. And I want to say thank you to you four people who did that. It's it's, um, you know, a little simple thing. I could be having a bad day and come in here and I sit down and I pull the thing up on the computer and I see somebody got the grass stock radio supporter pack. That little thing made me suddenly feel like, well, maybe all this is worth it. You, you don't have any idea how many countless hours <laughs> goes into producing this thing. Not, let's just forget about all the hours that it took to even know what I'm talking about to talk about in the first place. But anyway, I just want to say thank you to those of you who have supported the show by picking up the supporter pack. And, uh, by the way, you can find that on grass talk radio, go to any show notes page anywhere on grasstalkradio.com, And I'll, I've got a little thing there to show you how to do that. If you want to do the same. 
And the second way uh, that you can support the show, and this is sort of more anonymous because I don't know if you're buying my videos to support the show or whether you just never heard of the show. I, I don't have a way to know, but that's always a possibility to go to bradleylaird.com. Enjoy all the free material and Lord knows there's a ton of it there, but just remember that guy that put all that stuff together and perhaps visit the store and pick yourself up one of my eBooks courses or video lessons. And of course, if you're completely broke and have no money, enjoy the free stuff and share links to my website, bradleylaird.com or grass talk radio, share links that cost you nothing. Think how many times a week you hit like on Facebook. Like is great. I love like, but share, share that, that can help, you know? And of course I say this all the time, rate and review the show on iTunes. If you care to, I appreciate that. And I'm going to close out this episode with a little track from a band called City Hotel from Savannah, Georgia. And I know this, uh, the mandolin player with City Hotel is a guy named Corey Chambers. And uh, I had a little sideline band back about, oh, I guess about nine or eight or nine years ago. I was playing with Cedar Hill and I was playing with Pony Express, but I wanted to be playing the bass too, keeping my bass chops up. And I had a mandolin student, a guy named Hal Turpin was a mandolin student and he used to get together and pick with this guitar player named Corey. And he, well, after lessons, he was my last lesson on Tuesday. He said, we're going to go down to the pizza place and jam. Why don't you come? I said, okay, I'll bring my bass. So I had a guitar, a mandolin and a bass. And we used to go down to this pizza place and just pick. And I, I started telling them the same kind of thing that I've been telling you in this episode. I kept saying, you guys ought to, you know, pick a name. You know, this could be a band. We could start a little band here, you know. Anyway, we, we eventually did that. And I think it really helped them a great deal to operate more as a band instead of just going to a pizza place and picking. And we formed a band called the Incorrigible String Band and recorded a little CD and started performing at some local festivals and stuff. And back at that time, Corey Chambers was the guitar player. Well, he moved away from Atlanta. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we took a little weekend getaway and went down to Tybee Island, Georgia. And uh, spent a weekend down there. And I contacted Corey because I knew he's being from Savannah you know, maybe they might be playing around somewhere. And I knew he had this new band called City Hotel and that he had switched to mandolin. Um, I knew all this because one time his mother contacted me and said, Corey wants your book, Mandolin Masterclass for Christmas. How do I get one? I thought that was pretty cool. Um, anyway, so down there in Tybee, Corey says, yeah, we're playing at the, uh, the Post Theater, Tybee Post Theater. I'm like, Awesome. So we go see his band, City Hotel, and I'm just going to play a little bit of one of their tunes here. And the, there's a link in the show notes for this episode. Just go to grasstalkradio.com and slide down to this episode, and I'll have a link to uh, Corey's band, City Hotel. Anyway, hope you dig this. I, I thought they did a great job performing down there. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.
filled fish. I rest my head upon my fist and you pick sand in my face. As we wade into the sea, forget that business with the tree. What it means to always be in a sun drenched place. All these things make me wonder. Head on to Nirvana. Not so much that you all leave. All the fruit bearing trees. What makes me want to stay in these sheets? I see you staring at my feet. Things make a moment. Let's head on to Nirvana. 